0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, as well as problems and events. Temporarily replacing your usual hosts, Elizabeth Ferry and John Plotz, are Ajanta Subramanian and me, Lori Allen. This is the second episode of a three-part series on ethno-nationalism and fascism. In the first episode, we talked with Murli Natarajan, a scholar of caste in India. In this episode, we're talking with a scholar of the Israeli extreme right. And the third and final episode will be a conversation between the two of us and our fellow interviewer, Professor John Plotz of Brandeis University. Today, we're joined by Natasha roth rowland Natasha is a writer and researcher at Diaspora Alliance and a former editor at 972 Magazine. So Natasha
1: has a PhD in history from the University of Virginia And she wrote her dissertation, a phenomenal dissertation on the history of the Jewish far right um, in Israel, Palestine and the United States. And Natasha, thank you so much
0: for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Um, As Ajanta mentioned, Natasha, you've written a really remarkable dissertation that shows how integrated the far right has been in Israeli society and politics and nearly since the beginning of the Zionist movement. Um, you know, radical right ideas are not exceptional, but have really been fundamentally part of the ideology, as well as the personnel and the politics of the Israeli state, and its Zionist supporters in the US, which you show. Leading figures in Israel's government have been leaders and members of organizations that can really only be described as radically right wing, if not fascist. And we were just wondering if you could start by introducing listeners briefly to Jabotinsky and the revisionist movement from the 30s, the Khanist movement from the 60s. And and if you could kind of briefly summarize what the goals and ideologies of this extreme right-wing movement throughout Israel's history has been.
2: I really want to stress at the outset is, is a transnational movement. That's, that's a key argument that I'm I'm making in in the dissertation and really I think it's the only way to adequately understand the Israeli far right is to actually understand it as a transnational Jewish far right. That's the context it's born in, even though the transnational component kind of moves across continents um as you know the the huge events of the 20th century unfold. Um, and that's you know that's the context in which it, it lives today. So Betar and Jabotinsky and the revisionist movement. And that's really the birth of the transnational Jewish far right. And, you know, Vladimir Jabotinsky is born um, in Odessa in the late 19th century. And, you know, he's living kind of at the edges of empire, but is also in a context where you have the nationalism of small nations kind of bubbling up all around him in interwar Europe. And that's what he draws on, you know, he he's influenced by the Polish far right and by other far right movements around him. And that's what he draws on when he is developing his revisionist movement, which is a reaction to the kind of more quote unquote, mainstream Zionism that is, you know, on its face, less militaristic, um, is more about, you know, kind of slowly upbuilding building settlements in Palestine. And, you know, the revisionist movement is, is quote unquote, revising that. Um, and the kind of sharp end of that is, is, as you mentioned, Betar, which is the youth movement of the revisionist wing. This really took its politics, its aesthetics, a lot of its ideology from the far-right nationalist and fascistic movements that surrounded it in interwar Europe. So, you know, they're wearing... Uniforms of brown shirts and brown ties. That uniform is abandoned very quickly in the wake of the book burnings in Germany. Um, there is a glorification of youth, um, mm. a glorification of the redemptive power of violence, especially in the lieu of the context of Jewish history, which is, you know, very much presented as as one of just pogrom after pogrom, um, subordination submission, repression, persecution and you know this this violent militaristic territorial movement is is kind of posited as the response to that. So that movement persists uh, through World War II. It's heavily involved in the war that surrounds the creation of the State of Israel. Um, the military wing of the revisionist uh, movement is the Arab Gun. Jewish underground terrorist group uh, that was involved in numerous infamous terrorist acts during mandate, the years of Mandate Palestine. Um, and then when the state of Israel is founded, the far right kind of recedes uh, a little bit. You know, it's subsumed uh, by the demands of state making of politics. It's raison d'etre is, you know, the establishment of a state and... Although the state isn't the one that they wanted because a huge part of their ideology is territorial maximalism. So in this mm-hmm. context, that means, you know, a Jewish state on both sides of the River Jordan. And obviously what there is there now is is basically just on the west side fast forward to the 1960s, the occupation starts, there's a re-energization of both the desire for maximum territory and the kind of religious imperative um, that that drives it. There's a kind of messianic zeal that infuses the far right, um, which was was sort of a little less pronounced uh, in its early iterations. In the United States, this also generates a real upswell of of not just Zionist feeling because, you know, Zionism was by no means a consensus in in the kind of post-war and immediate uh, post-state era in the United States. And you have, um, you know, social political eruptions in the US as well, which are also influencing how certain Jewish communities um, perceive themselves. And in these kind of geopolitical earthquakes, you have a figure by the name of Mary Kahana come to the fore. He's living in New York in the 1960s. He has very, very extreme ideas about um, things that Betar were espousing decades ago about the redemptive power of Jewish violence, about the messianic drive needed to what he saw as redeem all of the land of Israel that was promised to Jews um, by God. And he founds a far-right group uh, in New York called the Jewish Defense League. It's mostly sort of advertised as a kind of self-defense uh, outfit that's there to you know, protect vulnerable Jews against um, other minority communities in New York. There's a lot of tensions uh, throughout the civil rights era. And then the group gets more involved in terrorism Starts bombing Soviet targets because of the repression of Jews in the Soviet Union. In order to escape uh, these legal troubles, Kahana emigrates to Israel in the early 1970s and founds his political party, Kah. Kah is essentially a fascist party. It has a fascist platform. Um, it preaches racial segregation, sexual segregation. Um, it preaches violence. It wants total war against Palestinians across Israel-Palestine, and it wants expulsion of Palestinians from across Israel-Palestine. Kach has limited parliamentary success. um, After multiple attempts, it wins one seat in the Israeli parliament in 1984 that is taken by Kahana. It's then expelled uh, from Israeli politics, or rather it's banned from running for the Knesset in 1988, ostensibly because of its racist platform, um, but Mm. largely because uh, the rest of the Israeli far right saw it as a threat. They worried that Kach was going to siphon off votes because of polls throughout the 80s showing the party's growing popularity. And then in 1990, Kahana is uh, murdered in New York uh, by an Egyptian who shoots him at the end of one of his events. And again, the movement kind of fragments a little bit again. It becomes a bit rudderless. But it's still there. The sentiment is still there. There are still atrocities being committed in the name of, of Jewish supremacism, in the name of territorial maximalism, uh, probably most notably the massacre in 1994 in Hebron uh, by one of Kahana's followers. And then fast forward to the present day, um, you have a Kahanist party in the Knesset with the largest seat hall the movement has ever drawn by a order of magnitude. Uh, and now we're in the current conflagration.
1: I'm wondering whether this vision of uh, greater Israel um, was it initially a fringe perspective? Or did expansionism define the full spectrum of Zionist thought? Um, and, I, you know, when I was reading your dissertation, I was kind of struck by what your analysis of the Six Day War, uh, which you say produced this sort of sharp increase in American Jewish support uh, for Israel, mm-hmm. even though support for the far right was still pretty low was still marginal in the U.S. So I- I'm wondering what this means. So does this mean that, you know, the territorial ambitions of the far right were actually much more widely shared? Would you distinguish? And if so, how would you distinguish the sort of religious and secular variants of territorial maximalism?
2: In terms of the maximalism, this is, I don't want to suggest for a moment that this is something that is entirely unique to the far right, Um there is, you know, the old Zionist maxim of maximum land, minimum Arabs. That is not a slogan that belongs to the Jewish or Israeli far right alone by any means. Uh, it's it's actually fairly widespread um, as an idea. But in terms of the kind of ideological divisions right from the start of the Zionist movement, and particularly when the revisionists make their appearance the maximalism was always at the heart of the revisionist ideology. It was one of the things that distinguished it because it was a top priority. Mm. You know, for, for the far right, there was no state of Israel without that maximalist um, capture of land. And that's still there, nestled, you know, in in party platforms or you know, in party discourse. Even even for the Likud, you know, even, it might not be the thing that is front and centre, but that ideology is 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 still there. Um, the logo for the revisionist movement and Irgun in the background was, you know, the outline of a map of quote Greater Israel on both sides of the River Jordan. So it was really, it was at the center of the ideology. It was one of the things that distinguished that part of the movement. It wasn't unique to the movement, uh, if that makes sense. Mm. And then in terms of the distinction between the religious and secular modes of that ideology, it's, it's really, again, about motivation um, and approach there's an extent to which you know Zionism is kind of this anomaly in nationalist ideology where the religious component can never be entirely extracted from it because of because of the history of of you know not only the movement but why it is understood that by Zionists that this land belongs to to Jews alone mm-hmm. there is an inherently spiritual component to it that just you know can't can't be extracted entirely but on the you know as far as it is secular on the secular side of things it's it's more about security Mm. and what is you know just owed to you know the nation if we can say versus Mm. a spiritual need to redeem the land Mm. because for religious zionists the land and the Jewish community are, are, in a way, part of a single entity. Mm. And so if you want to be able to redeem the Jewish community, the Jewish people, you have to redeem the land as well. You will hear religious Zionist leaders talking about dismemberment, dismemberment mm. when they talk about the West Bank or what they would call Judea and Samaria, when they talk about the fact that the land of Israel is is not whole. It's seen as spiritual dismemberment akin to physical dismemberment.
1: Uh, is there a way in which the far right is able to both be state and non-state, and that that sort of ability
2: to straddle that boundary actually helps it,
1: you know, uh, in furthering its ambitions?
2: You're right. There is this tension between state and non-state actors within the far right movement. And, you know, I I alluded to that a little bit when I talked about how the far right kind of seemed to disappear a little bit in the first couple of decades of the state. What you've had since then, and this has really been something that's happened throughout the history of the state of Israel, which is that you have far right actors bubbling up in response to some event, whether it's an exchange of land for peace uh, with one uh, neighboring country or another or, you know, a perceived deterioration in security for settlers and settlements in the West Bank. So a far-right movement bubbles up, protests against the government, and then the government shifts and co-opts that movement. Mm. And then you have representatives of that movement or their ideological descendants emerging somewhere sort of mostly within the mainstream of the government. And it continues, we continue to be able to say that they're within the mainstream of the government, because what is mainstream shifts to the right, Right. every generation. Um, So, you know, the peers of the settler elite from the 1970s and 80s, who were carrying out terrorist attacks against Palestinians and plotting to blow up the Dome of the Rock in the Knesset. Either as uh, party members, elected party members, or aides, or people who just have the ear of powerful ministers. Right. Um, the Kahana movement in the Knesset. Uh, now you have members of the so-called hilltop youth, who are, you know, the kind of latest vanguard of the extreme right, who are actually quite well. Certainly, at their inception, were very anti-government. Mm. Uh, because they they were almost anarchist. And you have now one who is in the Knesset as a, as a member of Knesset, you've had a couple of others who have been aides to Knesset members. So you see this just continual making space within the Israeli government, for the most extreme aspects of the far right movements that are protesting against it. Mm. Um, and then of course, it takes the pressure on it from off it from within Israeli society.
0: This is part of the, the story of your dissertation isn't it natasha right. of the the slow but steady creep ever right words of what was already at its base one could say a fascistic or at least ultra nationalist movement right and correct right. i think one of the questions we wanted to get to was about th- the role of violence in that move right words um and there's always been a link between violence and militarism as being kind of part of the Zionist ideology and um, at the heart of Israeli nationalism in some sense. And so can you see any change
2: in the significance of these values in Zionist ideology? I don't see that they've shifted at all. They, I mean, they've just been born out, right? I think a lot of the, you know, I you can call it the promise or the threat of the the place that violence and militarism would hold within Zionist ideology and then its application as a means of capturing the state, capturing the territory, and then maintaining military rule over Palestinians, whether that's inside the Green Line until 1966 or within the occupied territories after 1967. Violence and militarism sit at the heart of that. Um, This is a country that has had conscription since its inception. It's a country that has had prime ministers who are former members of terrorist organizations. Um, It's a country that sees militarism as the only way to ensure its perpetuation and to secure its own Ethno-nationalist group within its undefined borders. So I don't think, I don't think the place of violence and militarism has changed. It's just become more deeply entrenched. And as we very horrifically see around us today, I think there are very very few people who can imagine a future that doesn't rest on that. Right.
1: One of the things that I found striking was. And this has to do with the sort of transnational dimensions of this movement. Mm-hmm. Is the the convenient uh, in some ways the convenience of the diaspora, right? Like you talk about how there were these moments, like for instance, Bart Goldstein, his act of terrorism. Um, that right after that happened, you you say that it was it was um, it was deemed American right um so there was a way that violence there's this kind of way that violence can be sort of exceptionalized or externalized right to the United States um and that there so I, I'm I'm wondering about uh whether that's still even necessary to do right um if if there was a prior moment when this the U.S served as an alibi um and extreme violence was or Jewish terrorism was Put on the settler, right? The American settler. Is it even is is that sort of is the use of that alibi even necessary anymore, or is uh, is is vigilantism now considered
2: totally legit? I the alibi is is still in use. It's just um, restricted to the other side of the political spectrum. So when you know foreign presence or involvement in israeli politics is criticized or demonized it's only when it is coming through progressive organizations or or progressive funding from overseas um Mm. and yes absolutely in back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s you know when you had khanists attacking palestinians and uh you know damaging vandalizing mosques and when you had the Goldstein a massacre in Hebron in 94 Goldstein was was also an American a New Yorker yes the the comments that you would get you know from shin bet officers and and whoever in the Israeli press was well it's just those out of control Americans you know we don't as soon as we saw that they were attacking a mosque we knew that it, it, it was foreigners and you know anybody who opens a newspaper and, and sees pictures of mosques in absolute devastation in, in gaza and the west bank after airstrikes i, I think you know will make of that what they will um so i yeah that alibi just isn't isn't necessary anymore and yes partly it is because vigilantism has just become less and less uh, well there's there's been less of a political need to dispel vigilante violence by uh, far-right Jews especially Jewish settlers as something that is foreign to the Israeli political body mm. Um, the bad apples argument you know that you were still hearing even in 2014 after the the um in 2015, after you know some of the horrendous uh, uh, abuses and, and murders of uh, Palestinian civilians in the West Bank um, that were, were uh, uh, carried out by settlers, that just sort of isn't, isn't really heard anymore. Um, and not only that, but as has been reporting on in 972 magazine and other outlets, sometimes Israeli soldiers have not just stood by and kind of tacitly abetted these crimes but have actually joined in Mm. Um, and i think at that point the pretense that this is somehow a thing that has been imported Mm. into israel palestine is just rings so hollow that nobody really bothers with it anymore
0: And this is kind of a good segue to a a more sociological question that we had about the nature of violence and anti-Palestinian vigilantism and rampages against Palestinian communities. Is this is that is there a particular sector of society that has become that is more involved? Is there a class element, right? I mean, we know from the history of um, of Kahanism, for example, that there was an attraction um to by Mizrahim to the this movement being the traditionally more marginalized communities um of Jews in Israel. so is this a politics of resentment? Is that part of what's going on?
2: I think like with any you know far right populists nationalist movement, there is there is always grievance politics and a politics of resentment at play. Um, And there's also a politics of marginalization. Um, And I don't, you know, there's, there's, that's also a dynamic that has been exploited uh, by various leaders and politicians in Israeli history to kind of dismiss how widespread this far-right sentiment is and what the sources of far-right violence are and how um, distributed the ideology is across ethnic and economic and geographic lines in Israel-Palestine. And so the role of Mizakhim in that movement has served as a way for politicians using racist tropes to say, well, actually, this doesn't reflect... Who Israelis really are. Mm. Um, at the same time, Kahana was very astute about how he appealed to different communities to build his movement. And just like he did in New York, he sought out people who felt left behind, who felt excluded. You know, I'm. This will probably bring what Trump did in the U.S. Uh, to mind for some listeners, maybe. Um, and who felt like they they weren't understood as people who were given a role to play in their society, who were kind of just dismissed, counted out, scorned, discriminated against. All of those things apply to Jews of Middle East and North African origin in, in Israel. Uh, and he he appealed to that sense. And he didn't just appeal to it and say, you know, you have a role too. But he articulated it in such a way as to say, actually, you are the true inheritors Mm. of this state. Western Jews from Europe and the United States over assimilated, Mm. they became weak, they left their traditions behind, they abandoned and betrayed Judaism, you who were living in the Middle East, all this time, you stay true to your traditions. So that actually puts you spiritually in the top spot here, and I'm seeing that in you, and that's what's going to be realized if you become part of my movement.
1: You talk about the the, the place of uh, Mizrahi women uh, within his within far right gender ideology, and, and for Kahani in particular, um, that you know for him they both uh, sort of epitomized. Uh, racial and religious purity, uh, but that they were also, in some ways, a weak link because they were uniquely susceptible to Palestinian men, um, and that seems to again be this sort of way of both foregrounding their Middle Easternness, but also seeing it as a as a threat because it kind of blurs the distinctions, right, uh, between Jew and non Jew. So, I. So anyway, that, that struck me as super interesting, um, but I wonder if you could also sort of speak more generally about the, um, you know, the role of quote unquote traditional family values uh, within this far right ideology, um, and where women, where women fit, right? Uh, so not just as as tropes. Right, but as as actual people within these movements, um, are they are they members of these movements?
2: Uh, if so, why do they join them? They are members of these movements, and what that looks like depends on what wing of the movement it is. I I want to reference some really incredible uh, work that's been done on this um, by a couple of different scholars. One of them is Lihi Ben Shitrit. Another one is Tamar El Or and also Tamar Neumann. These are people who have really investigated the role that women play, particularly within the religious far right. Because I think, you know, when we when we bring to mind what you mentioned, as you just said, Ajanantha, about, you know, traditional family values and how that may or may not come into conflict with the role that pe- the very active political role that you know people are expected to take when they're in these movements these scholars have really delved into that and have delved into this kind of complementarity that exists um, in terms of women's role on the religious far right and particularly within the settlement movement. Now, the settler movement is kind of just about home building in some ways, which sounds, you know, like a gross uh, kind of underplaying of its violence, but actually... It is so centered around creating homes, creating communities. The act of creating those homes and communities is inherently violence. It, you know, it, violence. It enlists state violence, it enlists interpersonal violence, but it's about building homes. And that is how the people in the movement understand it. They are putting down roots there. And within these traditional family setups who is responsible for maintaining the home it's women they have domain over the private sphere and yes there are moments it's what the i think calls frames of exception where women step outside of those roles and actually do go into the public domain in you know moments of extreme threat to the settler movement or what they perceive as extreme threat to the settler movement and do go out and do stand in front of the bulldozers and do protest but by and large. Traditionally, the role has been one of homemaking. Mm-hmm. And that becomes inherently political because of the situation in the occupied territories. And where the conflict comes up is that, and this is what I believe uh, Tamar Elm uh, explores explores in, in her work, is that there is a contradiction between the imperative to build these homes as an act of territorial expansion, contributing to the Zionist political project, and the spiritual commands to recreate the nation. Because when you recreate the nation in such a dangerous environment, which the West Bank is or can be, which, which imperative takes precedence? Is it recreating the family and safeguarding the family, or is it expanding the political project and they exist along this fault line with the tension that just hasn't been resolved yet
1: I'm wondering about the natalism and
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know is it is it just you know religious conservative settlers who subscribe to the kind of natalist imperative to reproduce or is that more widely shared and how does that fit with you know kind of lgbtq politics kind of queer rights what, What's the connection between
2: these things? The natalist um, framework is is wall to wall. I mean, that is not owned by any political or social segment um, of Israeli society. And as you mentioned, um, as uh, in terms of India, it's the same. It's the same thing in Israel, Palestine. I mean, there is just constant fear mongering about the, you know, quote, unquote, Palestinian birth rates and uh, the supposed threat that that poses to the, the Jewish state, it's, it's, you know, understood as demographic warfare, essentially, mm-hmm. um, with all of the racist connotations that that brings. So, so yes, the natalism is, is uh, inherent across social and political sectors. In terms of LGBTQ rights, I have seen sort of liberal slash left-wing queer activists propose that the reason that same-sex couples in the country, same-sex Jewish couples in the country are allowed to adopt, even though they're not allowed to marry, is in service of this Mm -hmm. demographic um, fight. And although there are by no means kind of um, comprehensive laws enshrining the right to surrogacy and the right to adopt, and it's it's still very much a battle for queer couples there. Um, the fact that it exists at all in such a conservative country, uh, I think, speaks to speaks to that commitment to just increasing the Jewish portion of the population of the country uh, by any means necessary.
0: We just wondered if you wanted to reflect at all on terms like fascism or radical right and what these terms offer us or what you think they might obscure. Yeah, and po- populism too. I mean, po- you know, uh, again, sort of
1: to, to, to reference the India case, it, there's a lot of he- hesitation uh, on the part of even you know scholars who are openly critical of the the Hindu right uh, to use the term fascism. So there are other terms that are used like authoritarian populism. Um, uh, and I and I'm I'm always curious about that.
2: Speaking as a Jew, I can understand why people are uncomfortable with applying that ideology or ascribing, I should say, the ideology to a population that has suffered you know, the most grievous effects of fascism. Um, it is uncomfortable to refer to a community as sort of belonging to the same political tree as a separate political community that tried to destroy it uh, less than a century ago. Uh, so I think there's just a real discomfort um with with how those two things sit together, um, that I'm very sympathetic to. At the same time, I I think it's important to be realistic about the connective tissue uh, between these ideologies. And it's not that I believe the term fascism should be uh, liberally applied, you know, to describe the whole spectrum of the Jewish far rights. I, you know, I, I try to be judicious in my use of the term because I think you know, it is supposed to describe something very extreme, and I, I think you run the risk of if everything is fascism, then nothing is. Um, but I, I do believe it serves a purpose, and certainly when you're looking at um, a movement like Betar, which just fairly openly took its uh, some of its inspiration from fascist movements uh, that surrounded it during the interwar period when you look at the Kahnist movement and, uh, you know, aspects of its political platform, I I don't think with any kind of fairly standard working definition of fascism, you can look at those materials and say, no, this isn't that. Um, And I think there is a way that you can stay attuned to some of the complications of referring to a Jewish movement as fascist, while also acknowledging its place on the political spectrum and its historical lineages. So that's what I'll say about fascism. Um, In terms of populism and the radical rights, I think, you know, populism is a fairly useful term if we're thinking about this resurgent far-right nationalism that's been bubbling up over the last kind of well, I would say 20, 25 years at this point, um, particularly in Eastern and Central Europe. And so in the Israeli context, I think it's helpful to add it to that constellation because there are ideological overlaps there in terms of, you know, conversations about securitized borders, um and, you know, ethnic nationalism and quote unquote gender ideology and family values. Uh there's an Islamophobia, you know, there's a lot of overlap there. So I find that useful in a kind of contemporary context. And then as far as the radical right goes, it's a term that's used, that has been used a lot in the literature on the Israeli far right, I try to avoid it, just because in my own internal framework for understanding these movements and how they relate to the government. I understand the radical part of it to be something that is extra governmental or or is signaling kind of some kind of distance from the authorities and distance from the mm-hmm. government and for me that distance has just never been sufficiently established in the context of Israeli politics to mm-hmm. earn the term radical mm-hmm. so i i tend to avoid it i find it more straightforward and a little more accurate to just call it the far right
1: i was sort of struck by the 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 contrast that you draw between the the sort of aesthetics and rhetoric of Kahana versus Netanyahu and that w- one way that one could think about that is that he sort of he made he made fascism palatable <laughs> right right he like you talk about the 1980s as this really sort of pivotal mm-hmm. moment what it is about the 1980s and uh, the Reagan Revolution <laughs> right and this sort of uh increasing embrace of neoliberal policies um, how does that fit into the picture?
2: In the U.S., as you mentioned, you know, you have just this vast accumulation of wealth um, that happens, and the birth of, you know, what we now call mega donors, mm. um, who are, you know, far right um, billionaires who are very emotionally invested in the right wing Israeli uh, projects and in the settlement projects, and that accumulation of wealth is kind of pumped into the settlement project in the West Bank and back then in Gaza, sort of from the 1980s onwards. I mean, there are just vast, vast sums of money being transferred um, to to NGOs, NGOs, to to nonprofit organizations, activist organizations that are are working on settling different parts of the West Bank, of East Jerusalem, so that's really how that operates in the kind of transnational context going from the U.S. into Israel. And then in terms of the situation inside Israel itself, what happens in the 1980s is that um, Israel kind of formally adopts neoliberalism, and it begins slashing uh, public funding um public personnel, public resources. And as happens anywhere where you have this neoliberal uh, model, that creates a lot of space for private actors to step in. Who are the private actors stepping in in the occupied territories? There are these nonprofit organizations that are receiving huge sums of money from the United States to buy up buildings in East Jerusalem, to evict Palestinians from buildings in East Jerusalem, to hire private security, to uh, ensure that those evictions remain complete, and so on. And not only that, but this is something that a scholar, um, Arie Kampf argues in his book, the fact that Israel adopts this neoliberal model actually insulates it in some way from global pressure, because... It makes it it makes its own economy economy more sustainable. It is less reliant on outside funding to prop up its own. Functions Because so many of those functions have, have been slashed. And because of globalization, it becomes more integrated into the global economy. Mm. So there's therefore, there are fewer means of economic pressure that other countries can levy on Israel mm. to get it to change course, in terms of the occupation, in terms of its discriminatory policies policies against Palestinians, and so on and so forth. So it's really this multi-stranded phenomenon that we're still seeing the effects of today that, as you said, it has its its originary point in the 1980s, but it really, really starts to snowball in the 1990s.
1: I am wondering about um, uh, the early years of labor rule and uh the characterization of israel as a socialist state mm-hmm. um h- how does how does one reconcile that characterization with uh, a settler colonial occupation
2: well i mean it was socialist for jews outside the purely economic dimensions of that and you know what we sort of imagine as that the more ideal version of what a socialist society looks like mm-hmm. when that socialism is only intended for one ethnic group it then doesn't become a kind of safeguard against other more discriminatory or violent or exclusionary policies ideologies modes of government taking hold Um, Mm. so when you understand actually what was at the heart of that socialism which was that it was ethnically defined circumscribed yeah circumscribed exactly it's then less. It, it's less of a contradiction to see how that unfolds in line with settler colonial policy. In fact, it kind of they work together because mm. that settler colonial project is being upheld by by this restricted socialist model.
0: You're saying it was socialism for the Jews, and similarly, it's been a democracy for the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if part of what we're seeing in well until. October 7th, the objection to the current Israeli government has been an objection of people who are feeling um, the fascism of the state that has been part of what Palestinians have been feeling since the Nakba of 1948. So the term fascism becomes relevant when certain rights and certain forms of violence are f- are taken away from and felt by a white population for example
2: there has been talk of fascism and authoritarianism but it hasn't related to how israel treats palestinians it's just related to the 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 kind of rights and trappings of democracy that israeli jews have become accustomed to for themselves um so you know i think that there has been some element of people who've kind of started to draw the connections uh between that and the occupation uh but it's it's not it's not as if they've they've there's been this mass understanding that, yes, that actually the root causes of this are also the root causes of, you know, violence against Palestinians. Um, it's The analysis just hasn't got there yet. And I, I fear that what has happened in the last two weeks is, has taken us more than two steps back
0: folks in Israel and supporters abroad are only noticing the fascism that has been a through line of Zionism now because Jews are feeling it.
2: Right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think it's, I hope that eventually it will, it will, move more people to understand the contradictions inherent in the idea of a Jewish democracy. Um, but we have to see uh, what what transpires um, in the wake of everything that's going on now.
0: Well, and in the wake of everything that's going on now, it's just all the more critical that we get this right, that we understand this history and that we help people understand this history. And I think, Natasha, your work, your journalism, your scholarship has been and will continue to be a a real serious contribution to that, frankly, noble and important work, not to get too woo-woo, but um, I do think that's really important. (laughs) Yes,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank so, um,
0: so, thank you, Natasha. And uh, thanks to our listeners. We hope you'll join us for the third episode when I and Ajanta will join John Plotz and talking about the Israeli and Indian cases uh, in relation to each other. Thank you so much. Thanks,
1: thank Natasha. You very much. Thank you. Thank you. We really
0: appreciate it. Yeah. Recall this book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.